Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, welcome back to the Sports Media Watch podcast. This is John Lewis along with Drew Lerner. And we're going to talk as usual about the events of the weekend, all the ratings news. But first, don't forget to subscribe to the SMW podcast feed. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts. All right, with that out of the way, let's jump right in and talk NBA Finals ratings. So we're taping here Tuesday evening. Uh, Yesterday, the Denver Nuggets finished off the NBA Finals. They defeated the Miami Heat in five games, and the Game 5 audience, pretty solid. 13.1 million viewers, actually up from last year. Warriors Celtics, that was 13 million. So the first only game of the series to increase over last year. Most watched NBA game of the season. Second most watched NBA game since they returned from hiatus, which believe it or not, we haven't even gotten to the three-year anniversary of that yet. Less than two years or less than three years ago in July of 2020. So not a bad number at all in the context of where things currently are. Obviously still not a great you know, number, but given everything that's gone on the past few years, actually the largest Game 5 audience in four years. So if you're the NBA, given the matchup, given the fact it's 4-1, that's as good an ending as you're going to get. So this was the most watched game of the season, as I said before, uh, and if not for the strong finish, this would have been the first season uh, ever where the most watched NBA game was on cable because until Game 5, the largest audience of the season was still 12 million for Heat Celtics Game 7 on TNT. So uh, not too bad to get over that hump. And for the NBA, you go into the offseason. Hopefully next season you have a more attractive matchup in the finals. Not casting any aspersions on Denver. They're the defending champs. So next year, if Denver is there, they'll be more attractive because of that. But certainly you don't want Denver-Miami again. Heat were completely overmatched. It was basically a first-round series, 4-1, just like Denver over Minnesota in the first round. And just like in that Denver-Minnesota series, Game 5 was very competitive down to the wire. So you don't want a first-round quality series in the finals. No offense to Miami. They're going to need a, uh, you know, they're going to need a, a, a star. Jimmy Butler is a great player, but they're going to need somebody else at least to be there uh, if they're going to be making it back year after year. Drew, I'll go ahead and bring you in. Let's talk about Game 5 of the finals and the series as a whole. Yeah, John. Um, from... From a viewership perspective, I was just kind of thinking a minute ago how maybe the Nuggets and and the Raptors from a few years ago kind of some similarities where, you know, they're not the most attractive markets. You you have known commodities and stars on each team, but uh, I wouldn't call them superstars, right, in the sense that we would think of, you know, the top players in the league. But unlike the Raptors, the Nuggets aren't really going anywhere, right? They, their core is kind of sticking around. So it got me thinking about whether or not they actually have a chance to become more of a ratings draw. Uh, if they could start being one of the more sexy teams in the league after winning. What do you think about that? I kind of doubt it. You know, one, Jokic is not a personality in that way. Um, there's no American stars. Jokic is Serbian. 
Murray is Canadian. We know that American stars move the needle in a way that international stars, even ones from Canada, you know, going back to Steve Nash, even in a way that they don't. So I, I don't see that happening. And Denver, ultimately, they just don't move the needle that way. They never really have. It's kind of miraculous the finals held up as well as they did, but a lot of that has to do with how poorly the numbers fared last year with a much better matchup. So I, I don't think that will be the case. I do think, look, you go back to the Rockets in the mid-2000s, mid-90s. The first year that they won, the ratings really weren't very good at all. Uh, you know, that was just a really poor year for the NBA all the way down to there was a finals game in 94 that averaged the kind of numbers we see now. 11 million. It was a one opposite OJ, right? Game five in 94 was around 11 million viewers. Now that's a, that's a solid number in 2023. In 1994, you could probably get 11 million viewers for a test pattern back in 1994. So, you know, it was just, it was not a great year for the league and the Rockets weren't a great draw. They weren't viewed as a great champion. People didn't really respect them. But then the next year as a sixth seed, they mount this incredible run. Uh, they they do basically with the Heat and to a lesser extent the Lakers did, right? Make it really deep into the playoffs from a low seed. Uh, but, uh, you know, they went all the way and won. Beating Utah, beating Phoenix, being down 3-1, beating San Antonio, and beating Orlando. Four 50-win teams to win the title. And as a result, they became a glamour team from that. And then they got Charles Barkley. And then they were really a glamour team. You had three years apart. Houston, Utah in the Western Conference Finals. 94, the ratings were awful. That was an awful series from a ratings perspective in 94. 97, Rockets are the, you know, two-time defending champions once removed and have Charles Barkley. That series did really well, right? So, hey, if Denver manages to kind of thrill people in their title defense, or if they do what Golden State did, I mean, Golden State was a draw when they won that first title in 15, but nothing like what we would see later on. You know, the very next year, with some doubt, a lot of people didn't think they were going to do it again. They start 24-0. If Denver does that, then okay. But they're going to have to really do something, whether it's by utterly dominating or having, a, you know, a, a great, you know, run of exciting games. Nobody's going to sit down and watch a team that's better than everybody else and doesn't face any adversity. And we'll talk a little bit about that later when we talk about super teams, you know, Oklahoma softball and all that. But, you know, to me... You got to either be so dominant it's crazy, or the game's got to be good. Yeah, I I do think there is some momentum building around Jokic, though. I mean, just in the past month, it seems like every talking head in sports media is now calling him the best player in the league, right? And it it does feel a little similar to the Bucks and Giannis, right? I mean, when they made their run, everybody was calling Giannis the best player in the league, right? So it is a bit of a flavor of the month thing with him, but if he does continue to play and having watched, and I, I think a lot of people would agree, he plays kind of an exciting and um, appealing brand of basketball, right? I mean, he's distributing the ball. He gets his teammates involved, but he can still knock down the outside shot. He's got the inside moves, right? He can kind of do a little bit of everything. So I do think there is some momentum there that Giannis doesn't necessarily have with his kind of more limited game. Um, not to say Giannis is limited in any capacity, I guess, but, you know, he doesn't really have the the outside shooting that, that Jokic has, right? 
Yeah. You know, Denver played in a respectable finals from a ratings perspective by the current standard. They played in the most watched Western Conference final in years. We all know that that was because of the Lakers, but still they were in it. You know, there's some level of draw there. I would say people have not turned their TVs off because Denver's in the game. Mm. People would turn their TVs off because San Antonio was there, right? They don't do that with Denver. And uh, so, you know, maybe that's a, a mark in their favor. And, you know, all those Nuggets fans, and they all say, oh, we don't care about the ratings. We care about the ratings. So, yeah, you know, what's the big deal, right? Uh, I did want to bring up an interesting point. Um, so game four in this series, which was Friday night, yeah. uh, drew 10.4. And that was the lowest viewership number since 2007 for a game four in the NBA finals. Game five is the highest since 2019. And you, you said it was 13.1 million just a moment ago. Is there any reason that there is kind of a bounce back from game four to five? Well, one, maybe the kind of view that the Friday night game would be better in the out-of-home era. That might have been maybe premature. I'm still bullish on Friday nights in the out-of-home era. But, you know, maybe the Friday night impact isn't quite as as potent as all that. It's also the fact game four was not interesting to watch. It was boring. I mean, games three and four were boring, right? Games one, three, and four were boring, okay? And, and uh, certainly game four was just poorly played in a lot of ways. And you say, well, Denver played well. Well, a well-played game is played by both teams, right? It's not just played by one. So uh, it was a, a boring game, lifeless. It's nothing worse than the Miami crowd when the Heat aren't doing well. I mean, they they, they bring nothing to the table if the Heat are not you know, uh, on a, on an 18 0 run. So, um, you know, just a, a dull, boring game with no atmosphere whatsoever and uh, a clearly superior team dominating a clearly inferior one. Uh, so that probably played a role too. You switch to game five, one, a title is on the line. There will be a bump for a series clincher that almost always the clinching game of the series is the most watched, unless it's a ridiculous 131 to 92 kind of game like Boston over LA in 08. The, the clincher is usually the most watched. Uh, so you get a bump for the clincher. Miami leads nearly the entire time. Uh, the game was extremely ugly, extremely sloppy. I would say poorly played, but it was competitive. And so it went down to the final minutes. And anytime someone can win a title or a team can extend their season and they're a couple of points apart in the final minute, you're going to get a good number for that. So I think all of that contributed. Yeah, I, I was a bit, um, I, you could say bearish on the game five viewership number before I saw it, um, you know, about an hour ago before recording here. Um, you know, I, I understand and obviously I'm not nearly as well-versed in the ratings and the viewership numbers as you are. You're swimming in the data every day, and unlike myself. I kind of figured the narrative around this series was kind of kind of going to hurt even a, a potential game-clinching or series-clinching game. I imagine that the NBA is pretty happy oh, yeah. getting over that 13 million mark. Well, it's just none of this really matters, uh, even for the NBA. No yeah. one, No one game, no one year of ratings. But... You know, it's a nice little PR bump, right? You know, look, it, it's it's close enough to the national championship of men's college basketball, UConn, San Diego State. That was 14 or so million. Uh, I'll give you the exact number. It was uh, 14.7 million. So not at that level, but still, I mean, you know, it's not 
dramatically lower. Also outdrew the two games in the men's final four. Second largest basketball audience of the year, right? This is Denver, Miami in a, you know, four to one series. So I think you'll take it if you're the NBA, uh, especially given how strong the earlier rounds of the playoffs were. Uh, I would also note game five outdrew all the games of last year's World Series, which went six games. Uh, and the most watched was uh, 12.8 million viewers for Houston uh, versus uh, Philadelphia. Game five actually was the most watched of that six game series. So, you know, I think if you're the NBA, you'll take it. You know, there, there, there's no shame in the numbers that the league averages here. The only negative was game four. And again, that was just a really ugly game. All the other games held up really surprisingly well. Uh, I was thinking at the outset, because uh, I said so on the podcast, I said 9.7 million. That was where I was at. And every single game was over 10 million, much less averaging uh, over 10 million. And so if if this is what the NBA is capable of for a pretty uninteresting, unexciting series outside of maybe games two and five between two low profile teams, very short on the traditional stars, if this is what the NBA can get for that kind of a series, you know, maybe the maybe things start to look up. You know, the backdrop of this conversation is the NBA is entering negotiations next year for new rights deals. I know you mentioned, you know, no one series, no one game. That doesn't really move the needle for those types of negotiations. But do you think the networks kind of look at what happened this past season and say the NBA's incredibly stable if they can trot out denver and miami as you've said many times on this podcast one of the worst possible final scenarios for the nba and still average a pretty sizable number for the finals that that might impact how negotiations go next year no i mean i, I mean these negotiations are going on for so long one of the dumbest things i've ever heard in my life is from that tim donaghy documentary when they try to imply that David Stern knew the FBI was coming after the NBA. So he was like, okay, ESPN Turner, let's go negotiate our deals now, as if they would bang out a negotiation in two or three days. You know, all this stuff is going on for months and years in advance. And uh, no, I, I think this postseason was a reminder of why the NBA is valuable and not the finals. I mean, the finals certainly did well relative to the very low expectations, but those earlier rounds, 9.8 million viewers for a game seven in the first round, you know, 8 million multiple times, eight different games before the finals, averaging over 8 million viewers in this era of TV. The NBA strength is just obvious. I mean, most of these leagues are pretty strong now. I mean, even the NHL looks pretty decent. Maybe not this finals uh, between uh, Vegas and Florida, but for the most part, every sport looks pretty darn good in this era of television. And the NBA... I've said it before, I'll say it again. They they leave a lot of viewership on the table. You know, how many games on ABC? It's a little pittance of games every year. Uh, the NBA needs to get back on broadcast in a big way. The NBA is in a position now they need a partner that will grow the audience. ESPN is not that partner, right? And even TNT isn't. I mean, TNT and ESPN aren't capable of being that. You can't grow an audience with cable. Cable is not going to grow an audience for you, right? So, you know, for the NBA going forward, this is just more evidence that, yeah, they can stay the course and keep getting these numbers, and, but they could also try to grow their audience further, I think. And I think that's what they should be 
looking at. And the combination of broadcast TV and direct-to-subscriber streaming, that is where the future lies, in my view. All right, John, just a minute ago while we were recording, we had some new numbers released for the NBA Finals. Why don't you go ahead and run through those for us? Well, uh, just to give you the official averages for the series, 11.64 million viewers for Denver-Miami, five-game series. So where does that rank overall? That's going to be down from last year, six games, 12.4 million. Obviously, it surpasses the two COVID years, 10.2 million for Milwaukee versus uh, uh, Phoenix, and uh, just $7.7 million in the bubble for Lakers Heat. If you take out the two COVID years, you're talking about the least-watched finals since 2007. That would be San Antonio and Cleveland. So, you know, obviously it's not a great number historically, but in the era we're in, 11.6 million viewers, you know, I mean, you can't really complain too much about that. Uh, given the matchup and given where we are, uh, you know, in, in sports TV, uh, the overall playoffs averaged 5.47 million viewers, the largest audience, as I've been saying, uh, you know, for, for weeks, the most watched playoffs in five years, it's that 2018 postseason. when you can average, uh, uh, that many viewers over the course of two months, that's pretty good. And I will say that's. ABC, ESPN, and TNT. So, uh, but I would uh, expect it to be exactly the same across ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV, though I will check for that number. You know, uh, a lot of the ratings discussion nowadays is going to get to a place of, this is pretty good for where we are. The, the era of, this is just really good, no matter what the context, with no caveats, that's probably over. We have one broadcasting note here before we get off the NBA and into the Stanley Cup Finals. Uh, Mike Breen called his 100th NBA Finals game. Obviously, he's one of the best to ever do it. Uh, I wanted to know if you had any thoughts about the longevity of Mike Breen. Yeah, you know, Mike Breen becoming, uh, you know, uh, reaching the point he's reached is very interesting because uh, for a long time, he was just kind of there uh, doing the lower games for NBC uh, did the WNBA finals a couple of times. And of course, if you've ever seen the Teresa Weatherspoon shot at the get at the end of game two, that was one of his, you know, most famous calls early in his career uh, back in 99 for NBC. Uh, you know, I, I will say I always thought Mike Green could do it uh, mainly because Mike Green was the only one whose voice I could imitate when I would do the play by play uh, for my video games. I was Mike Breen and Bill Walton and Jim Gray. And so I'm just, you know, yeah, it was, it was pretty wild, but uh, you know, no, I, I, Mike, to me, to see him become the voice of the NBA, he would deny that he's the voice of the NBA, but much like Marv Albert, he is the voice of the NBA, like Dick Stockton, like Brent Musburger. He's the voice of the NBA, like Chick Hearn, who never did anything nationally, but is so associated with the league. Uh, you know, he's in that class and, it's been, you know, he's been a great steward of the game and uh, hopefully many more years to come. In this media deal, he'll get to, assuming all goes well, and assuming ESPN doesn't do anything extremely stupid like lay him off, which you cannot rule out. Like, you really can't rule that out. They'd be crazy to do it, but they were crazy to lay off Mike Soltis. Uh, so, you know, but uh, assuming they don't do anything ridiculous and assuming health and all that, 
he will get to 21 straight by the end of this contract. And let's say NBC comes in and takes the rights, takes the finals. No way they don't go to Mike Green, who, of course, worked there before. So uh, it's uh, uh, poetic for him to call a title in his 100th finals game. Yeah, for for my generation, John, it's it's always been him and and Marv Albert. So um, I didn't even know that there was any question marks about him as a broadcaster in the um, late '90s and the early 2000s. To to me, he's always been a one on on the NBA broadcasts. Him and uh, him and Mar- Marv Albert. So um, congratulations to him on on a hundred finals games. Uh, not quite questions about him or anything, but, you know, it was just one of those deals where kind of like a lot of these broadcasters, like an Iron Eagle even, where you just, you're, you're mm-hmm. stuck in that lower part of the depth chart because there's a lot of people ahead of you. And let me just say this, ABC gets the rights to the NBA and they immediately make a ridiculous decision. They name Brad Nessler the lead voice of the NBA. Brad has never called an NBA game before. And then they doom Brad Nessler. They name him to a role that they should not have given him. And then they doom him by pairing him with Bill Walton and Tom Tolbert. So Bill Walton and another eccentric analyst. And I mean, that was ridiculous. It didn't work. So the next year, they they screwed this up that badly. The next year, it's okay, well, let's bring in Al Michaels to give this some gravitas. Al didn't want to do the NBA. They had to, you know, kind of convince Al to do the NBA. And he got to do his very, very friendly schedule of only five regular season games, all in California. And, you know, he worked out okay with Doc Rivers, not so well with Hubie Brown. Uh, and then he would have kept doing it. But the NFL took Monday Night Football, moved it to NBC, and Mike Green just happened to be in that number two spot, right? And 18 finals later, here he is. There you go. Okay, John, let's move on to the Stanley Cup Finals. Not great news for them viewership-wise. Game three was down 35% from last year. Game four, down 44% from last year. Mind you, these were the two best games of the series so far. Game three went to overtime. Florida Panthers won. Game four, another 3-2 scoreline. Is this cause for concern? No, not really. There's no cause for concern anywhere. Uh, nobody's ratings are ever going to be bad enough for there to be real concern nowadays, right? Uh, so in the in the era of a welcome to flat getting multiple seasons despite its ratings, everyone's fine. But are the ratings good? No, they're not good. I mean, it, it, you know, if you're the NHL, you'd like to be stronger than this. These numbers are, this is not like Nuggets Heat where you're like, hey, you know, these numbers aren't great, but they're a lot better than I was expecting. These numbers are just meh. There just is nothing really good about them. Uh, and uh, to not even get to 3 million, this is going to be, I don't think they're getting to 3 million tonight. I don't. Uh, and if they don't, it'll be the first cup final outside of the bubble where not a single game got 3 million viewers since 2007, right? Like, is that really that big of a deal? No, but you'd like to have at least one game of your season get to 3 million viewers, right? It's not a lot to ask. You know, we're talking about a cup final well, actually, of course, I forgot. Panthers Bruins in the first round did get to three million, so they did cross that three million threshold in that first round series. But generally, you don't want your most watched game of the whole year to be in the first round. And that's definitely not what you want. So it's not a big deal. I don't think you know 
being on cable is a great idea going forward, but I don't think the cable factor is the problem here. I think the Vegas versus Florida factor is the problem. Yeah, you know, you're you're probably right. And I'm you know, I'm sure that a better matchup would get more more eyeballs, but I'm I'm looking at some of the other numbers from this week where just like these, you know, Saturday night baseball on Fox is getting 2.5 in the middle of the regular season going up against, you know, that was actually going directly up against the the exact same number, 2.56 million, the NHL and the baseball. Yeah. You know, hockey's always kind of been considered this fourth major sport in North America. And, you know, I know it's not all about, viewership when we're talking about what's a major sport what's not a major sport but there's a lot of properties out there that get 2.5 million and it's not for their biggest games of the year yeah. right is is it time to kind of throw hockey by the wayside even more so than we do now and you know well, why are we covering them at all well you know boy because hockey fans will get really mad if you don't right i mean let's let's you know but no i mean I think hockey, for the most part, does well enough every year to be on the list of things that matter. 5.8 million last year for game six, 5.1 million for game five. Are those great numbers? They're not great numbers, but just a lot of sports can't get there. Indy 500 can't get to 5.8 million viewers anymore. You know, outside of Daytona, no race can. We still talk about auto racing all the time. So I think. Look, it's not a great year. This is three out of four years now where the numbers are going to be pretty weak. And, you know, the NBA's weakness is still 11 million viewers. For the NHL, weakness is like 2 million. It's a big problem. But it's not really a problem because they got their money. And it's still, for TNT, is it worth it? For TNT, the potential is worth it. Because if you get a better matchup in two years, then it's Boston versus Chicago. And Connor Bedard, at 19 years old, is leading Chicago to a cup final, you're going to get a heck of a lot better numbers than this. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, this is a sport that, well, let me just tell you a little story real quick. Back in 1994, Sports Illustrated put out a cover that said why the NHL's hot and the NBA's not. Okay? So I'm going to list with a caveat here, and that caveat being that in 1994, ESPN's cup final games aired only on... uh, MSG in New York. So ESPN was blacked out in New York. So that's an important caveat. And I'm going to list out the viewership for ESPN's 1994 uh, Cup Final Games. 1.5 million, 1.8 million, 1.3 million, 2 million, 2.4 million, 2.4 million, and then 5.4 million, which is a really big number given the New York market was not included. The NBA that year on NBC, uh, game one was 17.8 million. 15.2 million, 18.3 million, 17.8 million, 11.4 million opposite the OJ chase, 17 million, and then 26.1 million for game seven, right? It's always been, these leagues are linked together and we talk about them at the same time, but there's all, it's never been close, you know? And uh, the reality of the matter is, we can't hold the NHL to the same level of expectation that we do with the NBA. And you just got to accept that sometimes they're going to kind of flatline in the ratings. And then, Hey, in a good year, maybe you'll get to a nice seven, 8 million 
8.7 million for that game seven in 2019 before out of home viewing without of home, who knows yeah, how high that would that's have a good been. point. So it is what it is. You take, you take, you take it year by year with the NHL. Yeah. I, you know, I want to backtrack a little, I, I'm, I'm not trying to piss off all the hockey fans that listen to our podcast, because obviously it's a sport worth covering. You know, there's a dedicated fan base. I guess where I'm coming from is at what point should we not consider it a major sport along the lines of the NFL, the NBA, and I would even still keep major league baseball in there. Oh, of Just, course. Yeah. Uh, you know, given the world series numbers, right? Yeah. Major so, league baseball, you know, people always make this big deal about how major league baseball, you know, is doing so poorly. Major League Baseball has consistently been at the same level as the NBA Finals in overall viewership. The NBA's advantage is in the key demographics, right? And I mean, usually it has more viewers overall too. But the, the key demos are where the NBA blows out baseball, but they've been pretty consistently close. Even when LeBron was in Miami, they were consistently close in overall viewership. Baseball's numbers are not bad. It's just that baseball skews much, much older. Yeah. Uh, and, and certainly as compared to the NHL, Yankees Red Sox regular season game, 2.56 million viewers on Fox at the same time that the Stanley Cup final was 2.56 million viewers mm -hmm. on TNT. I mean, we know the NHL is 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 not in, in baseball's class as, as a TV draw. Any other thoughts on the Stanley Cup finals? Uh, currently 3-1 Vegas. We have game five tonight. You know, any predictions or anything along those lines? I kind of hope it ends tonight, which is not great because, you know, you, you know, in your, if you, if you at all cover sports, you need more games, but I'm ready to relax a little bit. The NBA is over. I'm ready for summer league. My favorite time of the year in the NBA is summer league, believe it or not. I'm ready for the big three. I'm ready for the basketball tournament. I'm ready for that one thing in ESPN, the Ocho, the, uh, what is it called now? The Pogo stick tournament. Oh, I've I never love seen that. that. That's one of my favorite events I've ever seen ever on TV. The pogo stick part of the ESPN three. I'm glad you brought up summer league because I've said this for many years now to my friends that I watch more summer league than I do NBA regular season. Yeah. And I think it's for a couple reasons, it, you know, a, it's just a totally dead time in the sports calendar and B, you know, as a bigger college basketball fan than an NBA fan, I'm seeing more players that I actually recognize in summer league than I am honestly on NBA rosters when I, you know, they're eight years out of college. I forget who they are. Right. So I love summer league. I can't wait for that, especially because we're going to have some uh, high profile players in, in summer league this year. So yeah, great shout on that. All right, let's move on to some quick hitters, John. I'm going to tease it a little bit. We're going to, we're going to hit golf horse racing Champions League, French Open, and softball. We're going to try to do it pretty quickly. Sure. I know we're already probably 30, 40 minutes in here. Um, let's start with the Belmont Stakes. A few storylines here. One, first year broadcast by Fox, first of a seven-year deal. Uh, it did not go great for Fox. Uh, the broadcast, or the race itself was plagued by audio difficulties. Um, and then on top of that, they got pretty low viewership. Um, yeah. Viewership was 3.52 million for the race. That is a 28% decline from last year on NBC, which got 4.72. Um, what are your top line takeaways from the Belmont? Well, 
I mean, it's ridiculous to have the Kentucky Derby and Preakness on one channel and the Belmont on the other. And that's that's really what it is. And this same thing happened before. ABC had the Belmont for about five years from 06 to 2010. And ABC had had horse racing before. In fact, they it was their first time in just like seven years. It was only a seven-year gap between the era where ABC would air all of the races and then getting the Belmont back. And even so, you need to have all three on the same network, that promotional platform of, you know, the continuity. It's a very small period of weeks. It's like five weeks. The continuity needs to be there. Fox is kind of parachuting in at the end. Doesn't make a lot of sense. It was a questionable broadcast. Kurt Menefee didn't seem comfortable there, right? And I don't really blame him. I probably wouldn't have been comfortable there either. That's one of the reasons why I, 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 I bailed on going to the Kentucky Derby at the last minute. It was like, I'm not going to be comfortable there. I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to be able to get through it. You know, I, I wanted to go. I like horse racing. I mean, I know kind of you shouldn't say that nowadays because it certainly seems a little bit more like animal cruelty than it did a few years ago. But I always enjoy the pageantry of the Derby through my TV set. But, it, you know, Kurt Menefee didn't seem comfortable. Uh, Carissa Thompson didn't seem like she made sense there either. They're NFL people. I don't know why these NFL people are there covering horse racing. Tariko is so talented, he can fit in anywhere, right? Tariko could call a dice game in a backyard <laughs> somewhere, and it would be right. He has that thing that Bob Costas had, where wherever Bob Costas goes, you ever watch basketball? Not in a long time, John, but I have seen it. I just probably been 10 or 12 years now. Bob Costas was good in basketball. I mean, like, you know, you, you kind of bought it. You could buy that Bob Costas would be at a basketball game and covering it well. That's the talent that Tariko has. Not everybody has that. I don't think Kurt Menefee and Carissa Thompson have that. They're football people who made no sense being there, right? Uh, and so, you know, Tom Rinaldi is good at what he does. He was good to be there. Uh, it was kind of surprising to me. He probably hasn't covered horse racing much because ESPN and ABC didn't have the rights. So uh, he was a good fit. Um, and uh, the, the audio problems were horrendous. I felt really genuinely bad for Tom Durkin. Yeah. You know, coming out yeah. of retirement, no one could even hear him. And, uh, you know, somebody on Twitter kind of made the point that he also kind of sounded a little bit like a little rusty somewhat. You could kind of tell too. What do you, I mean, like when someone retires, let them remain retired. Like, it's tough to just come back and do it again at a high level. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the Durkin hire was just such a coup for Fox, at least when it was announced, right? And that got everyone very excited, or at least everyone that pays attention to this stuff very excited. And, you know, it, it honestly, the not the call itself, although I, I will agree that you know, he did sound rusty, but the audio problems yeah. really, it ruined the entire it thing did. for me. I mean, you know, I think 80% of the reason you watch a horse race on TV is for the call, right? I mean, you can obviously, you know, you can see where the horses are. You have the graphic up until, you know, the last quarter mile or whatever to see the positions, but the thing that actually makes it exciting is the person calling the race, right? Otherwise, you're just watching a bunch of horses run fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, that really just left a really bad taste in my mouth. I only caught about 
you know, 20 or 30 minutes of the coverage prior to the race. And, and I thought it was fine. I mean, it, it wasn't up to the level probably that NBC has done it at, but I mean, NBC has been doing this for much longer than Fox now, but you do, you did bring up a good point that, um, you know, having the, having the triple crown on, on one network, it is really the only thing that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. I will say this needs to be like tennis. You know, you're not avoiding John McEnroe. Doesn't matter if ESPN has a tournament or NBC does. McEnroe is there. Randy Moss and uh, Jerry Bailey. Just use Randy Moss and Jerry Bailey. You know, uh, I should probably know Joyce, not Joyce Brothers, not Joyce Brothers, obviously. Joyce, Joy, Donna Brothers. Donna Brothers. I was about to say it's brothers. Yeah. It's not true. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, Donna okay. Brothers. Donna Brothers. Bring her in too, right? Like use the NBC people. You don't have to use Tariko. You don't have to use anyone who's associated with NBC, but use the horse racing people that NBC uses who are associated with that sport. Horse racing isn't big enough to have Fox has its own crew. Just bring in the NBC people, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can put, and, and again, Rent Menifee. It's a very talented guy. He's a football guy. I don't know why they keep putting Menifee on all these other things. Yeah. I, mean, I I thought he held his own, honestly, from what I saw, but I agree. I mean, and, you know, Fox has other hosts that probably could have fit the role as well. You know, they could have put Rob Stone in yeah, there and he probably Rob would have Stone. done equally as well. Um, no, they should have put Gus Johnson on there. And I'm not really kidding. They yeah. should next year, they should have Gus Johnson do the actual call. Yes, that would. <laughs> That would be amazing. Yes, it would. They would get a lot of publicity for it. Yeah. Gus could go as wild as he wanted and it would work. Mm -hmm. He has a full year to practice. And it's not yes. soccer. There's no snobs sitting around in judgment. Okay. If you, if you, you know, the, it, it's one off, one race. And as long as there's no triple crown at stake, it's not really going to matter. <laughs> yeah. I say that's, that's a great idea. Cost. All right, John, um, let's move on to the French Open here. Uh, I got to watch you know, a lot of the French Open on Tennis Channel this year. Um, didn't watch too much of the NBC broadcast, A, because I kind of like the Tennis Channel coverage a little better. I think, um, you know, Dan Hicks is a little, you know, kind of parachute in for, for, yeah. for tennis coverage, um, although I do love him on golf, and I can't wait to hear him at the U.S. Open this week. Um, but anyway, um, French Open on, on NBC got 780,000, about even year over year. That seems to me to be kind of low for a, uh, an event of this magnitude. What, what do you think? Well, I mean, I'm not surprised. One, you got to keep in mind, NBC hardly airs any coverage at all. It's crazy. Yeah. Their, their, their tape delay is nonsense in 2023. Only the Eastern time zone gets... The, the live matches on the Thursday and Friday, even in the central time zone, you're an hour behind so they can fit in, you know, Hoda and uh, Jenna Bush. I mean, it's nonsense. Uh, NBC should not be allowed to continue carrying this event. You got to be a steward. If you're not a steward, you got to go. And uh, NBC's got to go. They, 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 they shouldn't have the rights to this. ESPN doesn't want to interrupt, you know, their precious morning shows. And I understand why. This time of year, you can't preempt, you know, Stephen A. and all that nonsense. You can't preempt that during the height of the NBA playoffs. Uh, but, you know, there is ESPN2. When ESPN had the French Open before, it was primarily on ESPN2. And with the new night sessions there, you could get ESPN in the weekday afternoons. A 3 o'clock night session leading directly into PTI. 
would be pretty good to have if I was ESPN. So, and they need to, you know, the Roland Garros needs to move those finals, if not to prime time, move them three hours later. What is noon in France? Noon Eastern in France is about five o'clock? Yeah, I believe so at this time of year. Yeah, now that you have night sessions, you have the lights, you're prepared, have those matches start at five o'clock local time, and then you're not in the morning anymore. You get an actual real window, uh, a nice afternoon window on the weekend. Then you could bring in ABC even. So, you know, uh, to me, I think ESPN probably should be the quote-unquote Grand Slam network again and have all four. But I would look into it if I was CBS, you know, uh, Paramount+. Plus. Uh, certainly, NBC is going to want to keep it for Peacock primarily. Maybe even Peacock would have the whole thing. Who knows? Uh, but uh, it can't be NBC and Tennis Channel. That's just two not working for the fans. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so inaccessible yeah. for 95% of the tournament if it's just exclusively on tennis channel uh no well minimal digital presence right you could subscribe to tennis channels you know over the top subscription service but i don't even know if you get all the matches with what tennis plus or whatever they call it um and then they have t2 which i think shows some of the lower tier matches yeah. but not the matches you want to see right so pretty much if you, if you don't have a cable subscription or a YouTube TV equivalent that has an agreement with the tennis channel. You're just not watching this event and it's impossible to build momentum over the course of the event, which is kind of tennis's calling card. If you remember the U S open last year, mm -hmm. there's a lot of momentum that built from, you know, the first few rounds with Serena Williams. And then you had Americans Tiafo that those are important rounds in a tennis grand slam to build interest. And you're getting none of that when it's on Tennis Channel. So um, I thought it was a good event. It wasn't, you know, amazing by any means compared to some of the other Grand Slams recently. But you know, a lot of it just got buried because of where it was, you know, accessible. Yeah, I think, you know, that's a great point you made. It's impossible to watch. You want to watch Alcaraz versus Djokovic, and you can only watch it if it's an hour behind. In the Central, I mean, you know, if you're on the West Coast, three hours behind. It's, the French Open isn't, isn't important enough for people to deal with that kind of inconvenience. They'll just say, hey, I'll catch the score at the end of the match and move on. Uh, CBS, which had the French Open for about five minutes in the 80s, I would say, why not? Come Sean McManus, why not? Have a little fun, get into tennis again, and uh, you know, get it for Paramount+. Plus. Drive subscriptions. You know, it, These things drive subscriptions. Peacock. Get subscriptions this time of year for the French Open. If I'm Paramount Plus, I go for it. All right, let's move on to the golf. Uh, we had the Canadian Open this week or this weekend. It was up pretty significantly from last year. And mind you, both years kind of had these interesting live PGA storylines coming in. Last year's Canadian Open was immediately following the first live event. So there's a lot of questions about, you know, what players defected and whatnot. Um, last year, this year, we obviously had the partnership between the PGA and live. So let's get to the numbers here. Sunday's final round, 3.3 million average. But the number that stood out to me the most was it peaked at 6.77 million. I mean, that, that seems to be a crazy number. It was a four hole playoff. So 
that probably accounts for some of it, but you know, that that's a big number for, for a non-major golf event. Well, I don't think any cup final game is going to be peaking at six, eight, six point eight million. You know, I mean, that, that's a big number. Uh, I don't really know how do you explain it? You know, I mean, it's not like last year when Rory won, that was the explanation. Rory won. I don't know who Nick Taylor is. I've never heard of this guy. Uh, who was the other person in the playoff? Uh, Tommy Fleetwood, who was seeking his first PGA Tour win, but he's kind of been a journeyman for a while as several runner-ups. Um, so he he has a following, you could say, but albeit small. Yeah, you know, this is another one of those out of home things. You got you got to think that that's a factor, right? You know, yeah. uh, Sunday afternoon, not a lot of other stuff going on, uh, and uh, you know you have a compelling product. You know, people are going to tune in. What else was on Sunday afternoon anyway? I mean. You know, I can't even think of anything. Is golf kind of an underrated property because of the long broadcast windows? Like averaging 3.3 million over almost a five-hour broadcast window on Sunday. I mean, that's pretty significant. You know, the window started at 2.30, uh, probably ended somewhere around 7, I believe. Um, not exactly sure, but if I recall, that's when the playoff ended. So, I mean, that that's a long time to hold that audience. Yeah, no, I mean, you're exactly right. Golf is very strong for that reason. You know, you look at the Belmont stakes, what is that an hour? You know, I mean, the amount of time that you sustain this audience matters and to sustain an audience of 3.3 million viewers over the course of that length of time is a, uh, a big plus uh, to me. Uh, golf is underrated for that reason. Also, you know, we know it attracts the, uh, you know, people at a certain economic level as well. Uh, you know, once we start slicing and dicing the audience and, you know, with class and things like that, we get in some hairy territory, but we also know that that is something that advertises value. So, uh, yeah, I mean, golf, uh, I don't think CBS and NBC will be uh, spurning the PGA Tour because of the live agreement. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. All right. Um... Champions League final, uh, that number was actually down despite the yeah. season being up. Uh, I found it a little interesting because, you know, Manchester City, who ended up winning, was was going for the treble, uh, which is quite a big deal for European football. So I figured that we might see a ratings uptick. That did not happen. Viewership was 2.18 million, down 21% from last year, which was Liverpool, Real Madrid, maybe some bigger brand names for for the u.s audience with those two teams uh what are your takeaways from champions league well you know i mean uh solid number it's soccer in america two million on cbs alone i mean no mls match is going to get that on an english language or spanish language network but certainly on an english language one uh you know uh it, it, it is what it is it's down from last year but i don't think you can i don't think you can complain what are the premier league matches that are getting two million viewers what in club soccer, other than Liga MX, of course, is getting that kind of a number? Uh, the answer is nothing. I think you're you're pleased with that number if you're CBS. Uh, the the other factor is the matchup. I don't know that Man City matters the same way that Liverpool does. You know, and last year was Liverpool versus Real Madrid. That is a much more attractive matchup than Man City and Milan. So you know that is to be expected in my view here. And I, I'll be real, I don't know what the treble is. I guess that's for Premier League, FA Cup, and U, UCL. 
Yeah, that's correct. So, but you know, it could be your domestic league and, and your domestic pup. So it could be any country, but I, I would contend that it doesn't really matter unless it's done in the English uh, Premier League in the FA Cup, because who the heck is playing in a Spanish Cup game? I don't know. <laughs> Well, uh, we'll see who wins the NBA double next year. Maybe the Nuggets will do it, the <laughs> tournament and the finals, right? Uh, and Summer League. That could be the treble. Yeah. Well, remember <laughs> back in the day, they used to do an international tournament. They would do a little UEFA for the NBA. And so the Bulls would open their title defense against Olympiacos or something. Mm. And they put it on NBC. And, you know, it was a preseason. Didn't matter. But maybe that'll be the next thing that Adam Silver comes up with. And you'll have the Nuggets playing, you know, uh, uh maccabi tel aviv yeah yeah there you go that'd be interesting <laughs> all right we got one more quick hitter here and that would be college softball oklahoma continues their dominance in the sport the thursday night game where they closed it out against florida state got 1.8 million on espn john college softball continues to be a wonderful property for ESPN. What are your top thoughts for this game or this series? Well, you know, uh, I think it did well, obviously. Uh, 1.9 million viewers is a good number, certainly a very good number for a sport that people kind of overlook. Uh, I would say let's just jump right into the, the dominance discussion because I've seen any time that a team is really dominant, we see this a lot in women's sports, you know, softball isn't the only sport Oklahoma is dominating, right? They're dominating gymnastics. They've won, I think, two, maybe even three in a row there. Uh, well, no, two, because Michigan won in 21. But still, you know, it's two repeat champions that they've got on the women's side at Oklahoma. And especially with women's sports, because we know women's sports don't get the kind of attention and are also often maligned, there's a real defensiveness about these dominant teams. But I still maintain that People prefer competition. And to me, when people bring up, oh, well, what about the Bulls with Jordan? I say the Bulls with Jordan, who went to a game six five times, who needed miracles. Michael, uh, you know, John Paxson with the game-winning shot in, in, in 93, Steve Kerr in 97, Michael himself with the flu game, and of course, game six in 98. The Bulls won so many close games in series that could easily have gone the other way. The biggest misconception about the Jordan Bulls is that they just ran through everybody. Even in 96, when they won 72 games, they managed to take a 3-0 lead in the finals and not win until game six. You know, that was what the Bulls were doing. Those were close series. Bulls never swept anybody. They never swept anyone in the finals, I should say. So, you know, to me... I, I never use that example. I, I never view that as, as a reason to believe that domination sells. Uh, I think if you look at the Warriors with Durant, it is definitely true. The viewership was a heck of a lot better for the NBA when Durant was in Golden State. But I don't think that has anything to do with Durant leaving. I think the NBA just had some really bad things happen. And the bubble, you know, was hard to recover from. And obviously... Two out of the last three finals have been Milwaukee, Phoenix, and Denver, Miami. You know, it is what it is. Um, my thought is that people want competition. When Brianna Stewart was at UConn, they won four straight. Those ratings weren't good, except for the one year they played Notre Dame, and people thought Notre Dame could win because they were both undefeated. 
outside of that, the ratings weren't good. UConn plays Syracuse. Who wants to watch that? You know, nobody wants to see, you know, that kind of a game. Now you have more competition. You have teams that are rivals, right? People want to watch Iowa and LSU this year. And of course, UConn is still around and we'll be back with Cage Beckers and, you know, AZ Fudd, et cetera, et cetera. So that is what people want to see. People don't want to see one team just roll over everybody. It wasn't that big of a problem in the softball this year because Florida State is a big brand and they just met in a three-game final back two years ago. But I will say this, as far as the argument about domination not hurting, there were three fewer games in that Women's College World Series this year because neither semifinal went to a second game and the uh, actual final did not go to a third game. So that right there is robbing you of three really strong audiences that you could have had if maybe there was a little bit more parity. The the UConn point is is definitely taken, and I you're right. I, there's probably levels of super team that you know you kind of have to get the happy medium right because I think with Golden State, you know they did dominate, you know a lot of games, and you know everyone pretty much assumed that they would win, but they still rated very highly. I mean that. They, they had a lot of brand names on that team, too, so that you have to consider that. But then you have teams like the New England Patriots, who were dominant for years, not necessarily winning every game, right? Although they almost did it once. <laughs> um, but you know, you, I guess you have to have a threat of a loss. And in women's sports, the parity is kind of more important because there's been a tendency in women's sports, at least up until recently, where there can be a big talent disparity between teams right and that's no fun to watch no one wants to watch the team get blown out so i i do concede to your point there however i think if we look at the wnba right now people are very excited about having possibly two super teams with the las vegas aces and the new york liberty we don't know how dominant those teams are going to be you know there's going to be true competitors to those two teams but I, I guarantee if those two teams meet in the finals, people are going to be excited. Oh, yeah. But, you know, the thing is, we don't know. And if they do make the finals, we don't know who will win, right? That's the key. Uh, you know, and um, you never know Connecticut, right? They've got off to a pretty good start yeah. here, as far as I know. I mean, Dallas is a nice team. You never know. Anything can happen. Uh, now, if it's Las Vegas and they roll through and then they do it again next year and the year after, then yeah. you've got a problem, right? You're right. You're right. Uh, but, uh, I, I will say uh, Serena Williams, a lot of really close matches. She won 23, but there were a lot of comebacks, a lot of close, uh, you know, close shaves. The only person she ever really beat up was Maria Sharapova. He did that a lot. Maybe Maria. maybe that's why no one's watching Djokovic. You know, I, right. even though, you know, Rude's made it to, you know, three final Grand Slam finals in the past year. I don't think anyone really gave him a true shot this year. So. There has to be a level of uncertainty, I guess, going yeah, exactly. into yeah, going into the game, right? You don't want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt who's going to win because then why is it interesting? Yeah, you don't want the Truex Jr., you know? Mm-hmm. Truex Jr., he'll win a race wire to wire. Can you imagine the nightmare of watching a NASCAR race for three hours where one person leads the whole time? It's the worst <laughs> imaginable sports product. Right. Yeah. And so you don't want the full Martin Truex Jr. You want some twists and turns. You want some excitement. You want some, you know, rubbing his racing and people passing each other on the home stretch and all that. 
I think there's intrigue to the super team, though, but as long as they're not too dominant. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. All right, John. Um, why don't you close this out here? Uh, what do we have in store for next week? Next week, we'll be joined by a special guest, one of two in a row that I have set up. So uh, looking forward to that as we head toward the end of June. It's going to be a quiet time in sports media coming uh, coming down the stretch here. Although, who knows? Hopefully those won't be famous last words because I think we could all use a little break here. Uh, just a little relaxation. Let's see what the NBA does with John Morant. Maybe that will <laughs> you know, spice things up. Yeah, I know. It's, it's sports media silly season coming up, so uh, it should, should be fun. Maybe talk about some topics that um, we wouldn't normally uh, discuss. Yeah, why not? All right, well, uh, we'll be back here next week talking more sports media news, but don't forget to sign up for the uh, SMW podcast feed, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, yada, yada, yada. We'll see you back here next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.